This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. For the Wild podcast is brought to you in part by support from our partner, the Calliopeia Foundation. Calliopeia honors all life as sacred and works to heal today's issues at their root causes. Calliopeia partners with many projects around a common vision for a future built with love, reverence, and responsibility for our shared home. We are so grateful for Calliopeia's generous support to bring so many inspiring projects to life and for making our show possible every week. Hey for the Wild community, Ayana here. Before we begin today's interview, I'd like to thank the city of Bend, Oregon for their continued and generous support of our show. I hope you've been finding time for rest and regeneration under the spell of deep winter. And if you're becoming restless and dreaming of adventure, consider planning a visit to Bend. This winter, you can spend many exhilarating hours skiing down Mount Bachelor. Come springtime, kayak down the crystal clear waters of the Deschutes, surrounded by stunning canyon walls. Look ahead to autumn where you can experience the vivid transformation of the landscape. Every season will reveal the beautiful cycles of wild nature. Bend is a member of Pledge for the Wild, a group of mountain towns that are committed to sustainable tourism and care for the land. We are grateful for the individuals who work tirelessly to protect nature. We're reminded to travel humbly and respectfully and to connect with local businesses and organizations. Consider visiting Bend, Oregon for your next adventure and help keep Bend beautiful by giving back at pledgewildbend.com. That's pledgewildbend.com. Welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayanna Young. Today on the show, I'll be speaking with Dr. Max Liberon, an assistant professor in geography at Memorial University, where she directs the Civic Laboratory for Environmental Action Research, also known as CLEAR. CLEAR develops feminist and anti-colonial methodologies and instruments in the natural sciences to study marine plastic pollution. Do I recycle? Yes. <laughs> Do I think it is a solution to plastics? Hell no. So recycling is good for ethics. You can be a good citizen. It's better than nothing, but it is not the solution because it actually allows the problem to continue. Dr. Liberon has played leading roles in the establishment of the field of discard studies, the social study of waste and wasting, the global open science hardware movement, and as a figure in feminist science studies and justice-oriented citizen science. Max, thank you so much for joining us today. Like I was mentioning earlier before we began our official conversation, that this topic I know is really at the forefront of people's minds as we, I think as a collective, learn more about our waste and the issues that comes with that. So thank you so much for being here and for all of the ways that you interweave your work. My pleasure. 
I want to say that as I was preparing for this interview, I was very much envisioning that our conversation would begin by discussing the pervasiveness of plastic and plastic pollution. But as I read your work, I became really intrigued by your framing of plastic as kin in response to the dominant discourse on plastic. So to begin our conversation, I'm hoping you can share what the plastosphere is and why plastic can no longer solely be understood as an inanimate object and how you arrived at the understanding of plastic as kin. Well, that's a lot of questions in one. Maybe I'll start with the plastosphere because that's uh, pretty straightforward. Plastics, whether they're waste or not, are inextricable parts of living systems. Everything from the fillings in your teeth to your contraceptive devices to parts of your bones. Those are, you know, those are medical things that you do, plastic in your body to, to make your body work. We ingest plastics, right? So, so plastics are already part of making our bodies work. They're part of making our infrastructures work. They're in highways and airplanes and they make automobiles safe, right? They're in pacemakers. So they're already inextricable part of systems. But then a few years ago, scientists found that when plastics enter certain types of ecosystems, mostly marine ones, they grow unique, one-of-a-kind, little tiny ecosystems on them. So the bacteria and then the, the sort of attendant organisms that, that eat the bacteria and grow around it don't grow in the same combinations anywhere else. And that they chose to call the plastosphere, right? the unique ecosystems that only exist with plastics. This is what makes plastics particularly interesting as a pollutant, although there are other pollutants that do it too, which is that there's not really a simple nature-culture divide. There's not really an us and them or it and us or whatever you want to call it. And I remember this when I was on one of my first research voyages is we were, we were out way in the middle of the open ocean. There was nothing anywhere near us that you could see above the water. And we came across this floating clump of a buoy with some ropes ensnared around it. And living around all of this was not only the bacteria and these sorts of things of the, of the plastosphere, but in huge, like I could eat them huge fish, right? So it was acting as what's called a fish aggregator, which is something that provides uh, shade and food for fish. And most of these fish were tropical reef fish, so we're halfway between Bermuda and New York City when we found this. And so it had probably started closer to Bermuda near the shore. And this entire little fish village had moved out into the ocean. And the debate with all the scientists on board was, do we take it out and kill everything? Or do we leave it in, even though it's pollution? I personally voted to leave it in, <laughs> but I was vastly outnumbered and outvoted because the, the other scientists understood their primary and really only goal to get rid of plastics. And so they took it out and the fish died and all the things living on it died. And so the, this idea of annihilation, right? The ban, the getting rid of straws, getting rid of plastics, boo plastic in a very complete sort of way is very, very strong, even with scientists, you know, across different social movements, across different sectors as a sort of annihilation relationship. But I think if you do annihilate plastics, just, you know, you can do a thought experiment. You would end up in a, a B-horror movie really fast. Like our roads would crumble, our airplanes would fall out of the sky. Like just, just things would immediately cease working. And I'm not saying, yay, plastic, let's, let's plastic it up every plastic chance we plastic get. But there are certain things that plastic is good at and that we need it for and certain things that it shouldn't be used for, like packaging. Packaging get used for a few minutes and we've turned it into one of the most durable, you've used one of the most durable materials in the world to do it. If I ran a design class, I would fail the student who turned in 
you know, the temporary use with the longest lived material combination sort of design idea. So when people talk about the ubiquity of plastics, they usually mean disposables or single use. Within that, I don't think they usually mean medical waste, which is a very important form of single use. I think they usually mean certain types of consumer waste. And within that, I actually think they mostly mean packaging. So if you want to talk about the annihilation of packaging, that's very, very, very different than talking about the annihilation of plastics. So that's the plastosphere part. The kin part, I am usually pretty hesitant to talk about, mostly because there's a lot of a lot of misunderstanding about kinship, particularly in academia, which is where I spend most of my conversations. So there's this like fetishization of kinship that is rampant and well-fed in academia right now, where like this is kin and that is kin and chemicals are kin and your left shoe is kin and you know, and it's usually a very colonial and even I would say imperial mindset where you go out and you you stick your flag in some kin and you say, that's my kin now. I like whales. Whales are my kin. Mine, right? That's the point of kin is that they claim you. You don't claim them, right? My family has a lot of adoption in it. And so what's very clear to us, especially if you're going back to try and find your biological family, if that's what you want to get up to, is that it that family isn't yours to claim. That family has to claim you. That identity has to claim you if you're actually going to become, sort of expand your family, expand your kinship, right? You don't get to be like, you, family, here, now. Also, family and kin isn't inherently good. So the reason I think plastics are useful to think about kin, if people actually get it right, understand kin isn't like a possessive term, which is often how it's used, um, is that, you know, everyone has that asshole uncle, that abuse of whatever, right? The abuse in your family, something like that. So plastics challenge the often fetishized concept of kinship as an inherent set of good relationships, right? They lead you to figure out, okay, how do you do good kinship with bad kin? Which I think is a problem that a lot of us have to deal with, with our actual, you know, nuclear and extended families. And so what that would look like with plastic, I think is really important. And annihilation isn't one of them, right? Ostracization and, you know, stepping it out until it's behaved so it can come back in might be part of it. But the annihilation discourse is not in any way kin, so kin introduces a whole new sets of problematics, really, really hard ones. When do you ostracize your kin? When do you not? When do you support them in their trauma and in the you know sort of bad stuff they're doing? When do you not? These are the problems that I think are more interesting with plastics, but I don't see a lot of people doing that. I see a lot more black and white situations that are not very kinny. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying in terms of plastic not being inherently bad, but when we're using this long-lived material for short, disposable subjects, so to speak, it's stupid, actually. It's really not an intelligent way to go about it. And uh, yeah, and I, I want to say that I was... Well, oh, yeah, please. Well, I was going to say, it actually is intelligent, just through a different set of intelligences. So I think this is a really important point that a lot of activists don't do. And that's instead of being like, whoa you know, um, packaging people are bad and stupid. And that was stupid. That's stupid design. What you would say is, no, under what conditions does this make sense? 
Under what conditions does it make sense to make some of your shortest lived commodity objects like packaging out of our longest lived materials? How does that make sense? Because when you answer that, then you'll know where you have to start working to make the change. And by and large, the answer to that question, the reason it makes sense is it is so damn cheap because oil and the petrochemical industry, which are the same industry, same as plastics, are so well subsidized and they have so much policy capture that right now, and actually for almost all time, virgin plastic, you know, raw oil sort of feedstock for plastics are cheaper, they're more predictable, they're more dependable, they're easier to make stuff out of than recycled materials and then alternative materials. So of course that's what you make it out of. Mm -hmm. So if you want to make change, you can't say like, well, that's dumb. You have to say, how does that make sense? Ooh, I love being challenged like this. Thank you for taking that there. And yeah, no, I, I completely see your perspective on that. And yeah, I was thinking about the subsidies, about subsidies in general the other day. I was speaking to a dear friend about reforestation and doing restoration without the use of petrochemical driven machinery. And my friend was saying, well, you know, it'd just be so expensive and the labor would be so expensive. I said, well, the other way is so expensive too, but it's subsidized. And that's why we're able to use bulldozers and things like that in our quote unquote restoration methodologies because it's subsidized. It's not because it's necessarily cheaper than anything else, but it's very interesting to see what gets subsidized and what doesn't, and therefore how we're using certain materials or petrochemicals or certain ways of doing things. So thank you for calling that out in this conversation. I think that's a really important angle to see it at, or else we're really not going to get anywhere with shifting the way that we do things. So I want to... Um, say that I was really struck by something I came across in an interview you gave with Frank News titled Anti-Colonial Science and the Ubiquity of Plastic, where you were quoted as saying, quote, the number one product category for plastics is packaging. It's not more than half, but it's the largest chunk. Most of that packaging has been necessary only since the 1950s. That's living memory. We could circulate goods in ways we remember from living memory differently than totally packaged in plastic, end quote. Bringing in this living memory as a response to plastic pollution is incredibly simple yet really profound. And I would love if you could speak to the history of plastic production in terms of how and why its necessity was manufactured and what the initial response was to the creation of disposability. What is our living memory of plastic? Well, so first of all, the hour in that conversation and this entire conversation is actually extremely fragmented. So the history I'm going to tell is the American history and the, the dominant consumer society of, of the U.S., which is largely white and industrially driven. So, and that is the history of plastic. There's a couple different histories and there's a lot of nuance to this history that I'm just going to skate right over. I mean, there's lots of really good sources out there for more nuance. Basically, plastic comes out of a sort of rising industrial science where one of the values is try things out and see what happens. And if it works, awesome, we can put it towards something. And so there is a lot of, there's different types of plastic. Some of them never really get out of the industrial drawing room. Some of them do. Billiard bowls were one of the first sort of consumer type plastics, sort of a cellulose base. But the problem with that plastic was that uh, it was really unstable. And so sometimes if they got hit really hard, they would explode. Super downside. So they, you know, kept working on it. Then there was like, you know, a little, you know, a couple 
generations in terms of um, industrial generations later, there was Bakelite, which was a little more stable, but also highly flammable. So there were all these different plastics that were being produced, but they weren't yet really mass produced until the Second World War. The Second World War helped get some of these kinks out of the system. So things stopped exploding and melting in the rain and like turning to mud and stuff like that. And so you can think of mass production as being quite enabled by um, military infrastructures. So the First World War and then the Second World War really helps mature the actual material of plastic. And in between the World Wars and the, the 30s into the 50s, well, so, and after the Second World War, there's this problem where when you have the two world wars in the United States and in other places in the world, you start having a making do sort of attitude, right? Like all of your resources are going into the war effort. And so people are saving and skimping and reusing and repairing and, and all of these sorts of activities that stick around after the wars. And the problem from a industry perspective is that if people are doing that, then they're not actually consuming. They don't need to consume new stuff. And the problem with plastics, because they're durable objects, is that you just need to buy one of that thing, and then it will quite literally last forever. And so Lloyd Stufer, who is, a, who is in the packaging industry for modern plastics, said the future of plastics is in the trash can. He said this in the 30s to a huge industry conglomerate sort of conference. And what he meant was, and you can look this up, this is readily available. What he meant was, we need to find ways to move plastics through households, not into households, and then they stay. And so he talked about disposability as the thing that would lead away from these saturated consumer markets and sort of make this giant, beautiful hole where plastics would go into it and people would just throw money right into this nice conveyor belt. And so that was a very strategic effect, strategic plan. But the problem was because society was like making do, repairing and not spending, they had to be taught how to waste. And there was a lot of resistance to it. Susan Strausser's book, Waste and Want, has this very cool thing about sort of even before the plastic conversation, there used to be tin cups at train stations in the United States and everyone would drink from the same tin cup. And then with the sanitation movement, they're like, no, 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 germs, that's how that happens. So we're going to use paper cups. This isn't even plastic yet. And there were riots, specifically soldiers rioting, because they thought that was pretty effed up, this wasteful thing. And what were they fighting for anyway? There was also problems with a lot of these disposals were, were sold to housewives to, you know, make work more efficient for housewives. And as part of that packaging was like, disposable uh, hygiene for women's menstrual cycles. And there are a lot of really funny stories in the archive that don't actually circulate very well about women reusing what were supposed to be disposables and also trying to deal with an infrastructure like toilets and stuff like that, that weren't quite used to disposables yet. So there's a little bit of a lag in some cases. Funny, funny, horrible, horrifying stories um, about being at like your in-laws dinner and you have a tampon and there's nowhere to put it in the bathroom or in that entire floor. And so what do you do with it? Well, well right, these, these stories. So um, disposability, one of, the, one of the truisms around plastics and waste that, that is very well developed at this point, but is absolutely not true, is that, quote unquote, humans are inherently wasteful, or we are just like a trashy species that trashes things. Besides the super problematic universal we there that erases like very important cultural and historical and political differences is the problem that actually even the we that you're talking about, like Americans, like white middle-class Americans, not even them, turns out. It was a strategy. It was a plan. It was baked. There was resistance. That resistance was overcome. Right? This is learned behavior and then the infrastructure to support it. 
was put in place so that there weren't actually other infrastructures you could choose from after a while. So if you go to the grocery store right now, especially around here where I live in Newfoundland, I dare you to find any food source that you want that's not packaged. You can't. It's not behavior. It's infrastructure. And that is by design. And that is not by design by what most people mean by quote unquote us, right? People in social movements, people who mean good. I'm also thinking about in this vein, I'd really like to also understand the timescales of plastic. You know, if you could speak to how they change and act over generations. So the, the, problem with answering that is that a lot of it is speculation and models because plastics have been around for a fraction of the time that they're modeled to exist, right? So if plastics last, you know, even a thousand years, which is conservative, they've only been really around since 46, right? 1946 in the way that they are now, right? And then more modern sort of plastics, maybe since the seventies, really. So that's only 40 years out of like a thousand or 10,000. So in a lot of ways, it's hard to tell. What we do know is that when they hang out in sunlight or in acidic conditions or in abrasive conditions, so like going up and down shorelines and the waves, they fragment. So because plastics made of really long, strong polymer bonds, right, these super long carbon and hydrogen chains, they're really, really strong bonds. So that molecular bond doesn't really break down. That's why plastics last so long. That's why they're so flexible and so strong, right? All these sorts of things. So when they're in the sun or in acidic or abrasive conditions, they'll fragment, but those, those polymer bonds will stay intact. So basically, it's just fragmenting into smaller and smaller pieces while staying completely chemically the same. And those fragments can get so small that they can be the size of nanoparticles, which if you know anyone who works in the nano sort of area, they work really, really hard to make things at that size. And plastic, they'll just get there by their own selves if you leave them in there, you know, like on a beach, right, or something like that. And they have very different effects at these different sizes because they hang out in very different ecosystems. So I remember, oh, it must have been 15 years ago, maybe 10 years ago, reading a study where they found plastic circulating in the gills of fish. And people were like, whoa, that's crazy. That's so, that's so small. Now we know it circulates in the blood of mussels. Oh, that's so small. Now we know it. So, you know, so it's, so, so that just the different sizes mean that they're interacting in very different relationships in ecosystems and in worlds. So when they're bigger, like fishing gear that you can see with your eyes from a distance, they tend to do things like entangle like whales and turtles and that sort of stuff. When they get really, really, really small, we're actually just researching that now because it's harder to tell what they get up to. So there's a lot, a lot of different stuff going on. The other thing is with most of those models, and some of them might have changed by now, but at least in the last, from a couple of years ago and earlier, when you see an estimate like, oh, this kind of plastic breaks down in 10,000 years, the way that scientists figured that out was to blast the plastic with all of the things that make it fragment. So bright light, bright UV light, acidic conditions, often using urea, which is same thing as urine, in like highly vibrating sort of abrasive conditions. And then they would measure how those bonds weakened or flexed, not came apart because they didn't, but weakened and flexed, and then mathematically extrapolated that. Turns out there are very few real world conditions of like brightly lit vibrating jars of pee where you find plastics. Usually they're hanging out in very different environments. So a lot of those estimates are very estimate to the point where I basically just say plastics laugh forever. Let's treat them that way. Let's not be like, well, if it's only 2000 years, because what if it's 20,000 years? What if it's you know, something else. So, because we don't really know, not from an empirical 
sort of, oh yes, I have watched that plastic degrade. The other thing we don't know a lot about is once they once those polymers do break into smaller chains, are those smaller chains toxic? What do they get up to? What are they like? Uh, we don't have a super good grasp on that. And that includes things for like bioplastics and stuff like that. When they turn into smaller chunks, those smaller chunks are running around now in the blood of muscles and stuff like that. How do they act? We don't really know. Drawing upon plastics and deep time, I'm thinking about how we're only ever moving pollution, not eliminating it. And I'd like to explore the fallacy of many proposed solutions that seek to remove plastics, especially in relation to marine pollution. And you openly discuss how the push to, <laughs> quote, remove plastics from the ocean is fundamentally misguided in that it ignores how deeply embedded plastics have become in the ecosystem, especially microplastics, which I feel like is something you were just speaking to. So why is it that nearly all technical solutions have failed to address plastic pollution? And is it even possible to have a solution that addresses plastic pollution within our current economy? Yeah, so we're about to make a lot of listeners kind of sad. Okay. Uh, and I apologize Brace for ourselves. that. Hopefully we'll loop around. And, and so one of the most charismatic examples of this sort of cleanup fallacy is uh, Boyan Slat's The Cleanup Array, right? Which is basically a big broom net thing that goes through the water and quote unquote cleans plastics. Almost every single scientist, marine biologist I know, everyone I know who is a scientist who's looked at this project has criticized it. First of all, because it doesn't actually get to the more problematic sizes, which are the smallest sizes, because its net holes are kind of big, bigger than five centimeter or millimeters. And the vast majority of plastics in the ocean are less than five millimeters. It's about the size of a grain of rice. But also because it's sort of a plankton killing machine. So it really roughs up plankton and, and it disturbs their flagella. And a plankton without flagella ain't no kind of plankton. Um, it just sort of drifts and dies. Well, I mean, it was drifting anyway, but without flagella, it can't eat. It can't repel itself. There is a lot of concern about it also killing larger animals. And I have seen photos. You're trying to clean up the biggest thing in the world that is full of some of the smallest things in the world. You have a scale problem immediately. I think someone's done the math and it would take like a gazillion billion tankers, all the tankers in the world working full time just to clean up a small fraction of one ocean, right? This, these are the scales we're talking about. People have trouble imagining how big the ocean is. It is too big to clean, my friends. <laughs> and so the solution isn't to hang out downstream after the plastics have been, have been created. It's to go upstream and to turn off the tap. So you can, you already know, and most people already know this, right? If you walk into your bathtub and your, unbeknownst to you, your bathtub has been running and you have a flood, do you get the mop or do you turn off the tap? I would say the vast majority of you will turn off the tap and then go get the mop. That's exactly what we have to do. If we're just going to sit on the side of the bathtub as it fills with water continuously and mop, you can sort of see the limited benefits of it. Are there some benefits? Sure. Absolutely. Right. But it's not the primary action that's going to address the problem to scale. And so ceasing the production of plastics, particularly packaging, which accounts for about 30% of plastics, almost no matter where you are in the world, roughly 30. That's the solution. And most of, or even all, maybe just most of the people I know who study waste and waste systems always say, hey, if you want to deal with waste, go upstream. 
once you got downstream, like it's just there. And you, you're right. You're absolutely right. That it's just, a, you just defer it. You just shuffle it around. You shuffle it into a landfill. Well, that's going to get flooded under climate change. And even if it's 10,000 years, those plastics are going back in the water. Once Boylan Slats cleanup array gets those plastics, where do they go? They go in landfill. Ocean is downhill from everything. Those plastics will end up back in the ocean. So it's not a coincidence that some of the ocean cleanup arrays' biggest sponsors are the packaging industry, <laughs> because it it lets them keep on keeping on with that you know faucet while they're handing out mops. Mm-hmm. No, it's really important for us to understand to understand this. And I'm thinking about these upstream ways of turning off the tap, so to speak. And I'm. And we talked a little bit about oil subsidies earlier. And so I'm curious to hear if you have any thoughts on how we stop these oil subsidies. And if you think that would be one of the ways in which we turn off the tap, so to speak, of plastic creations for things like packaging and so on and so forth. Uh, Yeah. So I would definitely say that oil subsidies are a core area. Divestment from fossil fuels in general would be a core area because of the uh, raw feedstock of climate change and the raw feedstock of plastics. Turns out it's the same feedstock. How weird, Uh, right? So you actually get to do a lot of work with one set of targets. I don't know how to deal with subsidies, right? I mean, there are limits to my areas of expertise. I have many areas of expertise, but they do not go all the way to governance, uh, state governance. But I do know that it's collective, Right, because that's that's always true. That action action is about uh, reaching across difference and and scaling up, as it were, out of consumerism and into citizenship, into coalitions, uh, into other things like that. Yeah, and and I'm a big believer of going where it's feasible. So instead of trying to convince people who you will never convince, going for infrastructure and going for people who already value or believe what you do. Those are some of just the basic tenets of of, uh, effective activism. I didn't come up with those. But yeah, so I work a lot with the province um, of Newfoundland and Labrador when it comes to this sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think back to a mentor of mine, Joanna Macy, who talks about systems theories. And I remember in one of her workshops that I took years ago, and she was saying something like, you know, don't go to the CEO of Exxon Mobil to begin with. Start with your community. Start with the people who are on the fence. And I think that preaching to the choir or preaching to people that are interested in the choir actually is really powerful because the choir needs attention and the choir needs organization. And we all can start somewhere and it doesn't need to be starting with the thing that seems the most difficult or trying to uh, convince somebody who is so deep in creation. So I'm I'm with you there. And I want to go back to something we were talking about with the polymers and the chemicals that were being leached. And I understand that plastic isn't necessarily the problem. It is the polymers that decay and the, that leach the chemicals. And by recognizing this, we can understand that plastic isn't inherently evil. Although I know there are times that I have definitely thought that and probably people listening have also felt that. So I get you. <laughs> but I'm wondering... How does this thinking inform what you've referenced to as a local plastic economy? And what might our consumption look like if we had to be responsible for the byproducts of plastic production? And maybe a third part to that question, and I can re-ask it if it feels like too much at once, but where and how does plastic make sense? Yeah, it's a pretty big question. And I certainly 
can't and shouldn't provide an, a universal answer to that. I think that'd be very unethical and also incorrect. It just wouldn't be correct. So maybe I'll just take an example, a sort of parable, and then maybe we can work through that. So if you take seriously this sort of material flows idea, like you're proposing, so the lab that I run, the, the plastic pollution lab I run, there's a there are a few things that we don't do because of this material flow problem that you've identified, right? What if, you, what if you're responsible for your own waste? So we've started thinking about, in our anti-colonial science, the, this assumed access to indigenous land to put your waste in, including scientific waste when you're doing plastic pollution research. One form of this waste are plastic gloves, which we go through a lot of, latex gloves. Another is KOH, uh, potassium hydroxide, which is a chemical you use to dissolve tissues and stuff so that you can get to the plastic. So if you want to study, say, mussels or clams or these bivalves, you can't really dissect the belly of a bivalve because it doesn't have a belly. So what you do is you take out everything inside of it and then you dissolve it in KOH. KOH is very toxic. And so where does that go? It goes onto indigenous land to be quote unquote neutralized. So as a lab, we decided to not do that anymore, not assume access to land outside the lab for our waste, that kind of waste. And the result for that is that we don't use plastic gloves for some really, truly disgusting work because we mostly look in the guts of animals for plastics with one exception. We put them on when we work with seal because you can get something called seal finger from seal blood, which is when you have a cut on your finger and the blood gets in and then it paralyzes you. So that's not good. So we will use gloves with seal, but not other things. And that means you have to hang out with some super, super gross things like super decayed cod guts that are full of poo because guts end in your poop shoot. Uh, spoiler. So we work with poo and partially digested stuff. And so we get in there with our fingernails and that is gross. But that is also our commitment. And grossness versus colonialism, when you weigh it out, we're going to stick with grossness. <laughs> uh, for KOH, what that means is we do not study bivalves. So we don't use KOH. It means our work takes way longer than our peers, which means it takes us longer to publish because not using KOH means you're using your eyeballs and eyeballs are just much slower when there's a bunch of gunk around them. And it also means we will never study bivalves. I mean, we can't do it. So when, when people say, hey, why don't you extend this to shellfish, which are also important here, we're like, well, we don't have a process that we think is just to study that. And so we will not study that. So there's always this rhetoric of like, oh, well, you have to have your cake and eat it too. Like if you want to get rid of fossil fuels, how will you have your cell phone? Well, maybe we won't. Or maybe it will be one cell phone per 50 people and you got to share. Or maybe, you know, the cell phones aren't disposable anymore. So this, we do science. We do science just fine without very many plastic gloves and without KOH. In fact, we're leading scientists in our field and our science is better, in which I mean more ethical, because we've made those swap outs. But we still have plastics in the lab, right? Sometimes when we don't have other, other choices. We're still also working on what to do instead of latex gloves that, yeah, are feasible. So always moving on that. Does that sort of get towards your question? Yeah, I feel like that gets to what our consumption would look like if we are responsible for those byproducts. And I'm wondering, does that also tie into the local plastic economy? Does I was interested in, in that as well and wondering if you could speak to that too. Uh, well, currently, I, I don't think there's such a thing as a local plastic economy because the plastic manufacturers are like the DuPonts and the Exxon, you know, they're huge, huge, huge conglomerates. So it would be an exercise in imagining a local plastic economy. 
And chances are excellent that there wouldn't be much of one <laughs> because the economy that requires plastic right now, which is usually what starts with extraction, oil and natural gas extraction, goes into fracking towers, or sorry, cracking towers, not fracking towers, fracking is part of the uh, extraction. Cracking towers, right? these, are, these, are hu- these are not local instruments. So Newfoundland, where I live, the island of Newfoundland and Labrador, there is offshore oil here. That oil doesn't stay here. It goes far, far away to be processed. And then we get plastic shipped back in. I don't think that could be called the local economy because you can't even track it. So the local plastic economy is an exercise in imagination. It is not a thing at the moment. And maybe it wouldn't be, at least for disposable plastics. I mean, I could imagine the more local we become, the less we would need the disposable plastics. I do think what you were saying about there are certain plastics that are, I don't know, I don't want to use the word necessary, but are helpful. And so to not put all plastics in the same category is bad or we should get rid of altogether. Yeah. So for instance, I use the example of pacemakers a lot. So in all my many years of researching marine plastics, I have never found a pacemaker on a shoreline or in a seal. <laughs> that tends not to be what I find, right? There are other, they're not to scale. They don't, they, they don't quote unquote leak out of infrastructures easily. These pacemakers, you don't like lose your pacemaker very easily. There's definitely different, potentially proper places uh, for plastics, but I definitely think packaging is not generally one mm-hmm. of them. Mm-hmm. And the reason that packaging is useful is that it, it uh, extends the shelf life of food. So if you don't have plastic, then you don't have these massive global food economies. Is that a bad thing? (laughs) Do we need a global food economy? Maybe not, certainly to the extent that we have it now, because we've been just, we we have lived, again, in living memory without the kind of global food economy we have now. Yes, yes. I'm so happy you spoke to that because that's, you know, what I was trying to get at with this local plastic economy. If we are, you know, eating more locally we wouldn't need to preserve food as long as it takes to ship something all the way from, say, Indonesia into our local co-op in California, for instance. So yeah, I'm totally with you there. And I'd also like to discuss the feasibility of recycling and where our recyclables are even going at this point. And I know many people are totally skeptical of the recycling industry, especially given that out of the 15 to 30% of recyclables that are uh, retrieved in the U.S., approximately half are buried or burned due to contamination and market fluctuations. But I'm not even sure how many of us are actually aware of why recycling isn't working or what's happening to what we are disposing of. So I'm wondering, is it failing because of lack of participation or the materiality of our products? I would say neither of those two things in the biggest uh, category. So if you're, if you're interested in this question, I highly, highly, highly recommend Samantha McBride's book called Recycling Reconsidered. Samantha McBride is brilliant. She is also the research head honcho at the New York City Department of Sanitation. So what she says lands in a very real way into infrastructure. So, so first of all, different materials get recycled or are more or less recyclable. So aluminum, for example, is very recyclable because it's very, very expensive and time consuming to mine bauxite, which is the ore for aluminum. And so 
that's why you'll see uh, people who waste informal waste pickers who are professional waste pickers. They'll often go for metal and aluminum before they'll go for other stuff, right? That might be where they specialize. And the reason is there's usually a market for aluminum, right? You can actually make money off it. Paper, not so much. Glass, hells no. Glass is heavy. It's easy to make and it breaks all the time. So there's almost never a market for glass. Plastics, which is my wheelhouse, is a hot mess because actually there's no such thing as plastic in the singular. There are plastics and there are many, many types and they have many, 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 many plasticizers or monomers added to them. And then there's different methods for making the plastic. So if you take like PET, if you extrude it versus whether you blow mold it actually means it has to get recycled differently. If it has this plasticizer versus that plasticizer, it means it has a different melting temperature, which means you have to recycle it differently. And sometimes you can't tell what that is because those are proprietary blends. So when you get a whole pile of plastic, it will melt at different temperatures and turn into an amorphous blob that you cannot do a whole lot with. And because the raw feedstock of plastics, oil, natural gas, are heavily subsidized, it is almost always less expensive to buy raw feedstock than to use recyclables. So there is that. The thing about recycling, my number one problem with recycling is that the way it's been greened, and by the way, it was greened almost entirely by the container industry. So the recycling symbol was commissioned by the Container Corporation of America, which was a paperboard company in 1970. And you'll see things like when municipal, especially large urban municipalities like New York City or something like that, when their recycling programs are imperiled, the people who buy them out are usually the container plastics and cardboard industries. The thing about recycling and the way it's been greened is that there is a way out of the problem of disposability that is green, that is called recycling, right? So before, the reason that recycling became so popular in the 70s, the way it was promoted through Keep America Beautiful, et cetera, is because these disposables, largely beverage containers, started showing up in places they weren't supposed to, like in ditches and in farmer's field and in cow stomachs, which were harming the cows. And there's a lot of outrage around this, especially in the American sort of prairie area. And so recycling was one way to deal with this problem, Keep America Beautiful and sort of talking about litter, and saying this isn't an industrial problem, this is a human behavior problem. And then also, don't worry, we've saved you with recycling, was a like two-pronged fork. What's a two-pronged fork? I guess it's a meat fork. A meat fork method to, uh, to deal with the problem of disposability without endangering disposability. Again, because it was the way to stop saturating markets by moving things through households instead of into them. So recycling is a very big part of that master plan. Do I recycle? Yes. <laughs> do I think it is a solution to plastics? Hell no. I know Samantha McBride also recycles and she would say the same thing. So recycling is good for ethics. You can be a good citizen. It's better than nothing, but it is not the solution because it actually allows the problem to continue. It allows that tap to keep going, that bathtub tap to keep going. It gives you some mops. Right. It's the way that recycling is marketed by industry is a tool that creates this social license to waste more because we feel like, oh, well, we can just recycle it. But I'm really happy that you're speaking to this because I know that a lot of people that I hear from, especially environmentalists or activists, kind of have come to this feeling of defeat in the sense of, well, you know, China isn't even buying our recycling anymore. Like, what's the point of recycling? It, it We can't really recycle 
you know, who where we can't even send it anywhere. So let's just throw everything in the trash. It's a waste of time. So there, I definitely feel this type of defeatism when it comes to recycling. And then scaling out even further, it also feels important to acknowledge that waste more broadly in that our garbage or municipal solid waste makes up less than 3% of total waste with the remaining 97% being made up of industrial solid waste. So I'm wondering also, how is the waste of today different than previous generations? And how can we address industrial waste given the tremendous impact it has you know, I and I guess I'm thinking too when we're trying to think of our ethics on recycling or our own individual waste, but knowing that, like I was saying, 97% is of this industrial solid waste that many of us probably have no control over. I mean, maybe we do in some um, indirect ways. Uh, yeah. So first of all, that 93 or 97.3% stat, I've written on it before. It's a super sketchy stat because the 97 is self-reported industry. And a lot of that stuff doesn't move into a place where it can be scrutinized or tested. So it's a super shaky number. Also, a lot of that is mining waste, like mining tailings, which are super heavy and wet, agricultural waste, including sometimes runoff. So it's a, it's a sketchy number, but like what I say, it's an imprecise number. However, it's a very telling number because even if, let's say it's like 80, 20, it's still got the same, it still has the same flavor, right? Yeah, so so folks who work on mining are actually working on uh, waste. People who work in the food movement are actually working on waste. People who work on extraction industries and climate change are actually working on waste. People who work on clothing and textile issues and fast fashion are actually working on waste. So, so the good news is most of us are already working on waste <laughs> by targeting these larger industrial, large-scale systems. One of the cool things that happens is, so if you go back to say, recycling and, you know, how do we scale this sort of stuff? There's a very cool group called Gaia, Global Alternatives Against Incinerator Alliance. I might have gotten that wrong, but those words are all in there. They do what's called um, brand audits when they deal with waste on their shorelines, plastic waste on their shorelines. So instead of saying like, so what I do when I do a shoreline study as a scientist is I say, I have found this many thread plastics, this many fiber film plastics, this many fragment plastics, and this many bead plastics, whatever. They say, we found this many Coca-Cola products, this many Unilever products, and because those are accountability metrics. So even though we can't always access and see the waste stuff, we know that every time we have an instance that we can see of, you know, a piece of a piece of trash or something that comes out. We know there's this huge infrastructure behind it and we can try and evoke that by following it back up the pipe the way that these brand audits do. So when Gaia does these press releases, they don't say we have found so many more film plastics and other types of plastics. They say the number one polluter on Philippine coastlines is Coca-Cola for the third year in the row. Coca-Cola, what are you going to do about this? Right? So there there are ways to bridge these scales. There are techniques to bridge these scales even without going and looking in the backyard of Coca-Cola, which doesn't exist, to see what its sort of waste properties are. And that's all you can do. One of the things that I talk to a lot of young activists about is not to do violence against yourself about how you can't do things that are literally impossible. You should release that. You should release that to the universe and not feel guilty for things that are quite literally impossible. And then adjacent to that, systems of power are not very faithful in reproducing themselves, actually. So capitalism, for instance, DuPont, something like that, they're invested in their own longevity and in maintaining themselves. But in the processes where they do that, 
it's not like every time they do something, it works perfectly and it's, and it's even and smooth and all you can do is throw your soft little body against the monolith. They actually reproduce things really unfaithfully. So some of the most success I've had in activism is when I've talked to former DuPont scientists who go into science, go into chemistry because they mean to do good. They want to make the world better and they end up working for DuPont. They are the quote unquote bad guys that people think are a monolith, but actually they're leaving behind these trails especially when they retire and they put things in archives. They're making these, these sort of chinches and armor. They're, they're unfaithful reproducers of the system that they're part of. And that leaves spaces. There's an artist that looks at this for military waste, I believe. Or he's trying to find military installations, black sites. And he does this by looking for the unfaithful parts where they try and reproduce secrecy, but they can't because they have to put their poo somewhere. And so when they ship out their sewage, he tracks that and that tells him where the military bases are. So this is just an example of how these systems are reproducing themselves in really patchy, uneven ways. And you can find those those little bits and work on them there in various ways, just to sort of uh, help with the despair situation that might be happening at this point in the podcast. Hmm. No, it's good to have these silver linings or these ways that we can be subversive and yeah, just find the fissures in the system that we can snake up and find ways of breaking this chain. I do want to ask another question that also may feel a bit heavy, but I think is extremely important to discuss. So to transition the conversation, I want to talk about the amount of plastic in our bodies and the nuances in defining pollution and harm and how alarmed we should be in terms of plasticizers as endocrine disruptors. Now, I think many of us are familiar with the various studies showing that humans all over the world, regardless of their personal plastic use, contain chemicals that originate from plastic, chemicals which correlate to infertility, miscarriage, reduced brain development, obesity, diabetes, cancer, and neurological disorders. Now, these statistics are obviously extremely alarming. But I'm wondering, are we justified in our panic? And if so, is there anything that can be done to remediate plastic from our bodies? So first of all, I'll say I never prefer panic because it's really uncoordinated. It doesn't get a lot of the stuff done. So concern, yes, but hopefully slightly more coordinated concern. Uh, so yeah, I'm concerned about the amount of plasticizers and, and industrial chemicals in general including ones that aren't plasticizers, that are in bodies. They're in all bodies tested. It's ubiquitous, but very uneven. So certain folks have more than others, and certain folks are affected more than others. And so it's actually a justice issue, because even though it's ubiquitous, fetuses, people of lower class, which also tend to be of, of color, are much more affected and carry much higher body burdens than others. And so that should help you think, oh, you can actually mitigate your body burden <laughs> with things like money. <laughs> And you can, through certain forms of consumer choice, you can choose not to ingest certain types of food that are packaged in plastic or canned, because cans have uh, plastic linings. And that can reduce your body burden by between probably about 40 to 60%, according to the research, of BPA in particular. So there's also other types of things that this hasn't been uh, researched on. But the problem is you still got that other 40 to 60%. So you can mitigate it, but you can't eliminate it. And because of that, that's another sort of, that's another moment to term upstream. Instead of being like, you have mopped up your body bathtub overflowy metaphor, which has now raged out of control as best as you can, time to turn off the tap. And that's upstream. Yeah. So individual action 
works to an extent. And I don't think it's the extent that you would hope for. So, you know, you can do some of that, especially if it makes you concerned and that's, that's what you want to spend your time on. But just know that that's not turning off the tap. Speaking of these systemic issues, I'd like to also speak about your work on feminist and anti-colonial methodologies in the natural sciences in your work with the Civic Laboratory for Environmental Action Research, or CLEAR, which is a feminist anti-colonial marine science laboratory that studies plastic pollution. And when I think about it, methodology remains deeply tangled in respectability and credibility, but arguably we should be centering respect not respectability. So I'm wondering what protocol has CLEAR created to keep good relations and respect at the core of your work? Uh, Well, there are probably literally like a hundred of them. So hmm, maybe I will just pick one. Super easy one um, that is particularly anti-colonial is that we don't do research on indigenous land when we aren't invited. Seems super simple, but your average scientist and your average environmentalist actually, because they are invested in doing good, environmental good, they will go to beaches and clean them up or do research on them. They will go to, they'll go to places that are not their places or that are under, you know, indigenous governance and they'll do research there without permission. But what that does is it swaps out your goods, right? So you're, you might be doing a type of environmental good, but you're also reproducing colonial entitlement to indigenous land for settler and colonial goals. So probably not what you meant. So you're being accidentally colonial while you're being purposefully environmental. So actually not that simple, not to go where you're not invited. Uh, it also, again, means that we take a long time to do certain research because we won't go certain places until we get explicitly invited. So I think it took me four years, maybe three and a half years to go to the northern part of the province, to Labrador, because I had to be invited by uh, Inuit before I would go there because it's an Inuit part of the province. But now that's where I do most of my work. So that's a very simple protocol. Did you have a different one in mind since you have totally read all of my stuff and I can tell because of how you're quoting things to something else you want me to talk about in particular? No, that I mean, that one is so important and especially to a lot of our listeners, I think, because I'm sure a lot of people listening to this podcast, they want to do good and they want to respect Indigenous wishes. And of course, those are different everywhere in the world, but how to be allies, how to be supportive it's really challenging, I think, for people to know that, especially when they haven't been taught how to actually be in relationship with the earth and with the people of the land. And this is another question about CLEAR, and so that will give us a chance to talk a little bit more about it. But I'm wondering if you can share a bit more about the importance of community peer review in terms of contextualizing the impact of scientific findings for the local community, and perhaps give some examples from your work with CLEAR. Right. Okay. So community peer review, I'm just going to take what that is first. And then intuitively, you might know why it's important, but we'll go into that. So community peer review means that when we do research that impacts or is from particular communities, before we publish results, we go back to the communities uh, where we got samples or whatever from, and we say, this is what we did. Uh, this is why we did it. That's what we found. What do you think? 
Uh, and implicit in that is also, can we please publish this, uh, which is what academic peer review is, but we've just switched the peers out, right, to be uh, community members. Um, and there are a lot of different values that underpin this and a lot of different benefits. Um, and we don't do it because of the benefits. We do it because of the values. Um, the first value is um, community self-determination to how they want to be represented. Um, so some of these communities are rural um, often very poor communities that depend on fish and the things we research and look in plastics for, for life and livelihood. Um, increasingly, these are indigenous communities, mostly Inuit, mostly Nunatsiavut uh, in northern Labrador, but also Nunatukavut. And so when we, when we do this with them, what we're saying is like, we're visitors here, even if we're also indigenous. Uh, and, and what do you think of this? Is it valid? Um, and can we circulate this in the way that we have understood it? Because maybe we will do harm and we can't know that kind of harm, right? We can't understand whether it's going to cause harm or not. Only they can tell us that uh, because we don't live there and we're not from that community. Uh, and even if we have a single member from the community, they can't speak for the entire community. So we'll go to them and, and make sure that we're not causing harm. But one of the other benefits is that often that they will really nuance our thinking because, again, we're not from there. And they'll be like, oh, by the way, um, that part is wrong or have you thought about that or next time you should do this because that builds on this. You know, And so um, in the course of that, that's how we get our research questions. The species we study are because of the, what people bring up and what people are worried about what they eat, what they think are important, um, how we study, where we study. Oh, you should go check over there because that's where the old dump was. Oh, we didn't know that. We're going to go check over there. Um, and then they, so it's also a form of validation. Uh, it means our work is automatically more meaningful because it touches the ground of where these people live. Um, and yeah, so those are, those are some of the, some of the basic, some of the basic values and benefits of community peer review. It's also cool. It's also fun. Uh, it's also challenging in ways that are, I think, really important for scientists uh, to realize that they're not autonomous geniuses and that everything they know are is like the entire truth. But in fact, there are other truths and other forms of expertise that can actually validly challenge you and your science. Yeah. Oh, Max, <laughs> so wonderful. And I love that you do that. I mean, I would feel so much differently about science overall as a as a way of studying, if more people did this, I think that's one of the parts about scientific study that really frustrates me at time is just the lack of community engagement and just relationship building. And I really hear you and that when the community gives you feedback, the amount of expansion that can happen, although challenging, maybe it makes the project take longer or maybe it, you know, shifts the area of focus is extremely important. And I know even for this reforestation project I've been working on, I've had community and indigenous consultation on it. And there have been times that I'm like, oh my gosh, like I've had to restructure almost everything based off those consultations. And in some ways, my ego might be a little frustrated or like, oh my gosh, like, oh no, I, I thought I had the right idea or I thought what I was doing was really good or whatever I thought about what I was doing. But overall, when I take that information in, the way that I can work in the world is so much more potent, caring, 
regenerative, like actually being a good ally. I mean, it, like the list goes on and on. And so I respect you and all of your coworkers so much for having that type of mindset. And I feel like you all are, uh, yeah, kind of at the forefront of doing work in this way because I think it's so rare and very unique. And I hope that people in your field become really inspired by what you're doing because, yeah, I think it needs to spread and more people need to be doing it. And I've read how in practicing this anti-colonial science that you don't get to be separate from the relation that you're necessarily dissecting and they're not merely an object. And so I'm wondering how have members of CLEAR oriented themselves to this idea and how are you choosing to foster a relationship with the fish or bird or whatever you might be dissecting and what models are required to do so? Okay. So that's a really good and complex question. And the answer is there's not a single way. So something that's really important about accountability, relationality, respect, is that it's not actually the same. It's not always the same. When people who aren't Indigenous hear Indigenous people say all our relations, I think sometimes people imagine this like forever web that just starts with you and just goes and goes and goes and goes and goes and goes through everything and everything is connected and oh my God. But um, it's not that smooth. It's not like a universal highway that connects everything. It's actually very uneven. So one of the things I talk about with clear members as we're sort of figuring out how do you relate to the fish you're about to dissect or this fish part you're about to look in for plastics is talking about how people are differently accountable to this. So most people actually know that you are not accountable to all your relations the same. You're not accountable to your grandmother the same way you're accountable to your mail carrier, even though you have relations with both. You're not accountable to your child the same way you're accountable to your spouse, nor do you want to be, right? Respect and relationality look different there. So we talk about that lesson and then we bring it to the lab member in front of the fish that they're about to look in for plastics. So Métis Nation, where I'm from, has actually an agreement with certain fish since time immemorial is that if we respect them, we can get food. And if that doesn't happen, then they'll stop being available for food. And so that's a very specific relationship compared to, say, our vegan lab members, which we have, settler, white, vegan feminists, who do not have a food agreement or any kind of agreement with the fish. And they're thinking mostly about life and death and one being inherently good and one being inherently bad. I don't have that relation. So different lab members are going to have different relations, different reciprocities, different ideas of respect. It is very important that I do not make the settler feminists take on indigenous concepts. That's super rude. It's called appropriation and it's pretty colonial. So the trick is how do you, in a lab with a lot of diversity, bring people into their accountability to their fish when they're going to have different accountabilities and different relationalities. So because we're methodologists, we try and figure that out in protocol, which is like the guidelines for hanging out with the fish. So one of them that everyone uh, abides by is that you don't wear earbuds like music headphones when you are working with the fish. Because no matter what kind of relationship you're supposed to have with the fish, it's not respectful to tune someone out while you're dissecting their body. Uh, it's not, it's not, it's a severing sort of action as opposed to a joining action. Also, before you start dissecting, you're supposed to take a minute and just think of that fish, where it's from, its land relations, it's what it was up to. Um, and then you start the dissection 
Uh, we have one lab member who uh, isn't trained in science, and she'll bring up a picture of the animal on her phone, especially if she doesn't know a lot about it. So if we have Atlantic cod versus mackerel or versus Arctic char, she doesn't know what those different fish looks like. So she'll bring them up on her phone and, and keep that picture up while she starts her dissection. We don't say you must have this relationship. We say you must attend to your relationality and accountability, and you have to work on that. So that's that's part of the part of the protocol for those things. I love it. <laughs> I really, really love it. And I, yeah, I mean, it's just a whole different way of being and doing. And like I said in my res- my last response, I just hope that this type of way of relating can spread to other folks because I think that really part of the the biggest foundational issues we are up against and what's causing this disconnection is the way we relate to each other to more than human kin. I mean, although I'm now thinking of the word kin because of what you said at the beginning. So I, I almost want to like pause on using that word until I think more about it. But yeah, I'm really grateful that that's the way you work. And to go on a little bit more into this topic, I'm hearing about the inclusion of traditional ecological knowledge in climate change studies and the natural sciences more and more, which seems like it could be good. And on CLEAR's website, you explicitly state, quote, we do not seek to extract indigenous knowledge to bring it into Western science. That would be a way to give more access to settler and colonial goals, end quote. And this feels so incredibly important to name amidst this rush to incorporate TEK in academia. So I'd love if you could share more about this and how CLEAR is navigating this. Right. So. First of all, I think there are really good projects that can bring traditional ecological knowledge and traditional knowledge and Inuit knowledge into various spaces. But I also think that relationality, ethics, accountability start from the place you are. And where I am is in an academic space that has almost no practice doing a good job of that. And all around me are people with immense appetite to consume Indigenous knowledge mostly as data and also as charisma and also as a chance to get grants on their terms, which is fundamentally colonial. If you think of the sort of super fast, dirty definition of colonialism as settler and colonial access to Indigenous land, life, life worlds for colonial goals, the incorporation of TEK into Western science is almost always colonial, especially where I hang out. I can't speak to other places. And so we just say no, hells no. So when, and part of the reason I put my foot down in such a very concrete way is that when people see, first of all, an indigenous led lab that says, no, we don't do that. They have to be like, whoa, what, hmm? right? They have to take a moment compared to say, if I, uh, if it was settler led or if we were predominantly settler, this doesn't mean that there isn't, isn't TEK that flows through the lab. Because we've got a bunch of Indigenous folks, we've got First Nation and Métis and Inuit folks in the lab, because our partners are also Indigenous, because we're often on Indigenous land, because we're using the skills we've learned and the things we know at different parts in our life, of course there's traditional knowledge flowing through the lab. It's just not for public consumption. It is never recorded. That's one of the rules I have. So sometimes, for instance, we'll sample in places because Inuit elders tell us to. We don't include that. We don't include that in our documentation. We follow it. We live it. We, you know, we're accountable to it, but that doesn't then circulate outside of that relationship. 
one of the ways that my elder Rick Tavoya talk, talks about this relationship is the reason that you don't film ceremony or things that are sacred or things that are extremely place-based is because it introduces a foreigner into a relationship that's not supposed to have random foreigners drop in by looking at the pictures later on, right? Not because something captures your soul, et cetera. And so the same thing happens with science is if you start circulating really promiscuously traditional ecological knowledge as data, you've just introduced like everyone in the kitchen sink into a relationship that's not that kind of relationship. So we don't do it. Yeah. Those are the sort of values behind that decision. I really loved hearing that example. This conversation has been so wonderful. I appreciate your fierce dedication to your work and the way that you interweave these different themes into your studies is so beautiful and such a example for us all that are listening. And for those even who aren't listening, I think the way that you're going about this is shaking shit up in the best way. And I'm so just grateful for you. So thanks for being with us today and for your work. And I definitely will follow what you're doing in the world and just know you have a team of supporters at For the Wild rooting you along. Awesome. Well, thanks. That was a a very generous uh, thank you. So appreciate that. And thank you back. Thanks for listening to another episode of For the Wild podcast. I'm audio producer Andrew Storrs. The music you heard today was from Ila Bamba and Ani DeFranco. I'd like to thank our host and founder, Ayana Young, as well as our podcast team, Aiden McRae, Francesca Glassbell, Hannah Wilton, Aaron Wise, Erica Ekram, Carter Lou McElroy, and Melanie Younger. Head over to our website where you'll find full episode descriptions, action points, and resources for this show as well as our back catalog of over 150 other episodes. Please take a minute to rate us on iTunes, subscribe to our bi-monthly newsletter, and join our community on Patreon. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week on For the Wild podcast.